Welcome to Nightfall Narratives, the podcast that goes where shadows and stories intersect to explore the eerie and enigmatic. Join us as we journey into the heart of the unknown, immersing ourselves in tales of suspense and terror. In each episode, we'll either read a spine-tingling tale, or we'll take a closer look at the art of writing, unraveling the mysteries of storycraft that make such tales so eerily effective. So, sit back, relax, and feel the embrace of the mysterious as we embark on this journey into the heart of the night. Welcome, my friends, yet again to another episode of Nightfall Narratives. I'm your Nightfall narrator, R. Douglas Patton. In this episode, we'll continue reading the Dunwich Horror, in this case chapters 3 and 4 of that classic tale by H.P. Lovecraft. When he wrote this story, originally there were no chapters, it was just one long tale. However, the chapter designations were given to this story when it was published in Weird Tales. Be sure to stick around also for the follow-up episode, as we'll discuss the archetypes of academic and investigative characters, as well as cosmic horror. And we'll also explore how you can implement these archetypes in your own stories. So, without any further fanfare, Nightfall Narratives presents The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft Chapter 3 Meanwhile, Old Watley continued to buy cattle without measurably increasing the size of his herd. He also cut timber and began to repair the unused parts of his house, a spacious peaked-roofed affair whose rear end was buried entirely in the rocky hillside, and whose three least-ruined ground-floor rooms had always been sufficient for himself and his daughter. There must have been prodigious reserves of strength in the old man to enable him to accomplish so much hard labor, and though he still babbled dementedly at times, his carpentry seemed to show the effects of sound calculation. It had really begun as soon as Wilbur was born, when one of the many tool sheds had been put suddenly in order, clabberded and fitted with a stout fresh lock. Now, in restoring the abandoned upper story of the house, he was a no less thorough craftsman. His mania showed itself only in his tight boarding up of all the windows in the reclaimed section, though many declared that it was a crazy thing to bother with the reclamation at all. Less inexplicable was his fitting up of another downstairs room for his new grandson, a room which several callers saw, though no one was ever admitted to the closely boarded upper story. This chamber he lined with tall, firm shelving, along which he began gradually to arrange, in apparently careful order, all the rotting ancient books and parts of books which during his own day had been heaped promiscuously in odd corners of the various rooms. I made some use of him, he would say as he tried to mend a torn black letter page with paste prepared on the rusty kitchen stove. But the boy's fitting to make better use of him. He'd orter have him as well sought as he can, for they're going to be all of his learning. When Wilbur was a year and seven months old, in September of 1914, his size and accomplishments were almost alarming. He had grown as large as a child of four, and was a fluent and incredibly intelligent talker. He ran freely about the fields and hills and accompanied his mother on all her wanderings. At home, he would pore diligently over the queer pictures and charts in his grandfather's books, 
while old Watley would instruct and catechize him through long, hushed afternoons. By this time, the restoration of the house was finished, and those who watched it wondered why one of the upper windows had been made into a solid plank door. It was a window in the rear of the east gable end, close against the hill, and no one could imagine why a cleated wooden runway was built up to it from the ground. About the period of this work's completion, people noticed that the old tool house, tightly locked and windowlessly clabbered since Wilbur's birth, had been abandoned again. The door swung listlessly open, and when Earl Sawyer once stepped within after a cattle-selling call on Old Watley, he was quite discomposed by the singular odor he encountered. Such a stench, he averred, as he had never before smelt in all his life except near the Indian circles on the hills, and which could not come from anything sane or of this earth. But then, the homes and sheds of Dunwich folk have never been remarkable for olfactory immaculateness. The following months were void of visible events, save that everyone swore to a slow but steady increase in the mysterious hill noises. On May Eve of 1915, there were tremors which even the Aylesbury people felt, whilst the following Halloween produced an underground rumbling queerly synchronized with bursts of flame, them which Watley's doings, from the summit of Sentinel Hill. Wilbur was growing up uncannily, so that he looked like a boy of ten as he entered his fourth year. He read avidly by himself now, but talked much less than formerly. A settled taciturnity was absorbing him, and for the first time people began to speak specifically of the dawning look of evil in his goatish face. He would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon, and chant in bizarre rhythms which chilled the listener with a sense of unexplainable terror. The aversion displayed toward him by dogs had now become a matter of wide remark, and he was obliged to carry a pistol in order to traverse the countryside in safety. His occasional use of the weapon did not enhance his popularity amongst the owners of canine guardians. The few callers at the house would often find Lavinia alone on the ground floor, while odd cries and footsteps resounded in the boarded-up second story. She would never tell what her father and the boy were doing up there, though once she turned pale and displayed an abnormal degree of fear when a jocose fish peddler tried the locked door leading to the stairway. That peddler told the store loungers at Dunwich Village that he thought he heard a horse stamping on that floor above. The loungers reflected, thinking of the door and runway, and of the cattle that so swiftly disappeared. Then they shuddered as they recalled tales of old Watley's youth, and of the strange things that are called out of the earth when a bullock is sacrificed at the proper time to certain heathen gods. It had for some time been noticed that dogs had begun to hate and fear the whole Watley place as violently as they hated and feared young Wilbur personally. In 1917, the war came, and Squire Sawyer Watley, as chairman of the local draft board, had hard work finding a quota of young Dunwich men fit even to be sent to a development camp. The government, alarmed at such signs of wholesale regional decadence, sent several officers and medical experts to investigate, conducting a survey which New England newspaper readers may still recall. It was the publicity attending this investigation which set reporters on the track of the Watleys, and caused the Boston Globe and Arkham Advertiser to print flamboyant Sunday stories of young Wilbur's precociousness, old Watley's black magic, 
and shelves of strange books, the sealed second story of the ancient farmhouse, and the weirdness of the whole region and its hill noises. Wilbur was four and a half then, and looked like a lad of fifteen. His lip and cheek were fuzzy with a coarse dark down, and his voice had begun to break. Earl Sawyer went out to the Watley place with both sets of reporters and cameramen, and called their attention to the queer stench which now seemed to trickle down from the sealed upper spaces. It was, he said, exactly like a smell he had found in the tool shed abandoned when the house was finally repaired, and like the faint odors which he sometimes thought he caught near the stone circles on the mountains. Dunwich folk read the stories when they appeared, and grinned over the obvious mistakes. They wondered, too, why the writers made so much of the fact that old Watley always paid for his cattle in gold pieces of extremely ancient date. The Watleys had received their visitors with ill-concealed distaste, though they did not dare court further publicity by a violent resistance or refusal to talk. Chapter 4 For a decade, the annals of the Watleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community used to their queer ways and hardened to their May Eve and All Hollow orgies. Twice a year they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence, while at all seasons there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story even when all the family were downstairs, and they wondered how swiftly or how lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folk are never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves. About 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face gave all the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney, too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stove pipe. In the spring after this event, Old Watley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen to chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstance as one of great significance, and told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his time had almost come. They whistle just in tune with my breathing now, he said, and I guess they're getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's a going out and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, outer I'm going whether they get me or not. If they do, they'll keep up a singing and laughing till break a day. If they don't, they'll kinder quiet down like. I expect them and the souls they hunts for have some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lammas night, 1924, Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury was hastily summoned by Wilbur Watley, who had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. He found old Watley in a very grave state, with a cardiac action and stertorous breathing, 
that told of an end not far off. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside, whilst from the vacant abyss overhead there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping, as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering nightbirds outside, a seemingly limitless legion of whippoorwills that cried their endless message in repetitions timed diabolically to the wheezing gasps of the dying man. It was uncanny and unnatural, too much, thought Dr. Houghton, like the whole of the region he had entered so reluctantly in response to the urgent call. Toward one o'clock, old Watley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few words to his grandson. More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve ye soon, boy. Open up the gates to Yogg-Sothoth with the long chance that ye'll find on page 751 of the complete edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from earth can't burn it nohow. He was obviously quite mad. After a pause, during which the flock of whippoorwills outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo, while some indications of the strange hill noises came from afar off, he added another sentence or two. Feed it regular, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place. For if it busts quarters or gets out afore ye opens to Yogg-Sothoth, it's all over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, the olden's, as wants to come back. But speech gave place to gasps again and Lavinia screamed at the way the whippoorwills followed the change. It was the same for more than an hour. When the final throaty rattle came, Dr. Houghton drew shrunken lids over the glazing gray eyes as the tumult of birds faded imperceptibly to silence. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. They didn't get him, he muttered in his heavy bass voice. Wilbur was by this time a scholar of really tremendous erudition in his one-sided way, and was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances which suspicion laid vaguely at his door, but was always able to silence inquiry through fear or through the use of that fund of old-time gold which still, as in his grandfather's time, went forth regularly and increasingly for cattle buying. He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height, having reached the normal adult limit, seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when a scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day and departed pale and puzzled, he was fully six and three-quarters feet tall. Through all the years, Wilbur had treated his half-deformed albino mother with a growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go up the hills with him on May Eve and Hallowmass. And in 1926, the poor creature complained to Mamie Bishop of being afraid of him. "'They's more about him, as I knows, than I can tell ye, Mamie,' she said. "'And nowadays, they's more nor what I know myself. I vow for God.' 
I don't know what he wants or what he's a trying to do. That Halloween, the hill noises sounded louder than ever, and fire burned on Sentinel Hill as usual, but people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of vast flocks of unnaturally belated whippoorwills, which seemed to be assembled near the unlighted Watley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemoniac cacination which filled all the countryside, and not until dawn did they finally quiet down. Then they vanished, hurrying southward where they were fully a month overdue. What this meant, no one could quite be certain till later. None of the country folk seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Watley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterward, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on in the Watley farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds, and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet and showed no signs of ceasing its development. As the shadows lengthen and the night falls, we come to the end of another episode of Nightfall Narratives. We hope you found our exploration of dark and mysterious storytelling and the art of writing thought-provoking and haunting. Remember, the stories we tell have the power to both chill us to the bone and inspire us to create our own. Join us again for our next episode, and until then, keep your eyes open and your mind curious, for anything is possible.